John was the only original disciple to live long and die of natural causes. 100 plus years old, he was known as John the Aged. And yet historians tell us that John attracted crowds like a rock star. He was the only follower still alive who had been on site with Jesus. Folks flocked to hear what the wrinkled old preacher had to say. His disciples would carry him in their arms into the arena where everyone sat on the edge of their seat hoping to hear a new story about the Word made flesh. And yet John usually gave the same brief sermon. He would utter just six words. The same six words that John writes in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. One of the early church fathers named Jerome in his commentary on Galatians tells us that one day after John had delivered his single sentence sermon, a disciple asked him, Teacher, why do you always say this? To which John replied, It is the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. John saw love as the heartbeat of his faith, as the anthem of Christianity. Here's the theme of 1 John. Let us love one another. Chapter 4, verse 7 begins. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Most of us inherited a birthmark from our parents. And did you know that love is the believer's birthmark? Let's say a mom has jet black wavy hair. And she has a daughter with jet black wavy hair. Someone might say, there's no mistaking that girl's mother. Or a father with a muscular frame has a son with a muscular frame. We'll say, he's his dad's spitting image. When a child shares a parent's most distinguishable trait, they can be confident that they were born to that parent. And this is true spiritually. God's most distinguishable trait is love. All true love is of God. Thus, those who are born of God will love as God loves. And certainly the reverse of this is also true. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now realize when John says God is love, he's not reducing the concept of God to a mere emotion or to some mystical force. The Bible reveals God as a person. He's a person capable of exhibiting a full range of emotions, love, but also anger and joy and grief and jealousy and patience. Yet God's dominant emotion, the trait that lies closest to the surface, is love. It's been said, love does not define God, but God defines love. What we know of true love, we learn from God. In fact, when you think it through, the truth that God is love is what necessitates the doctrine of the Trinity. The Bible teaches that God is one God, yet He exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
For love to exist, it has to have an object. So, for an eternal God to have always been characterized as love, then there had to have always been someone for him to love. Before time began, before the creation commenced, the members of the Godhead dwelt together in a beautiful, harmonious love. And for reasons unknown to us, God has amazingly now focused that love on you and me. John says in verse 9, In this the love of God was manifested toward us. Manifested means to put on display. Like a grocery store display that sits at the end of the aisle to grab your attention. God has showcased his love. But where can we see his love? John tells us that God has sent his only that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. God put his love on display in a Bethlehem manger. In an impoverished village known as Nazareth, on the shores of Lake Galilee, on dusty Jerusalem streets, in temple porticos, even on a hill called Calvary, God's love for us and the life he offers us is on display in his son, Jesus Christ. God's plan points to Jesus. God's empathy is seen in his coming as a man. God's wisdom is revealed in Jesus' teachings. God's power was on display in the miracles he worked. God's mercy and grace was visible in his dying. God's redemption was unveiled in his resurrection. Dying and lost people looking for life and hope need to look to Jesus. He is the love of God on display. You know, it's sad that so often people brag about their great love for God, the sacrifice they made or the gift they gave or the extremes to which they went. If that's you, just hush. We don't want to hear it. For verse 10 tells us, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I like C.S. Lewis's observation. He wrote, On the whole, God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for Him. Our love for God pales in comparison to His love for us. It's a drop from an eyedropper. His love is the sea. You know, it's been said, love always flows downward. Think about that. Love like water flows downhill. Love always flows downward. A parent's love for his child is stronger than that child's love for the parent. Love flows downward. And who among us will ever love will who among us will ever love God with a thousandth of the love with which he has loved us? You see, here is love. God loved us enough to send his son to die in our place. I love you guys. I love our church, but I don't love any of you enough to sacrifice one of my three sons. Sorry. If it's between you and one of my boys, I'll make sure you get a nice funeral service. (laughs) But I'm sorry. I could never sacrifice one of my three sons. Yet God sacrificed his only begotten son 
so that he could show us mercy. Jesus is our propitiation. It means a place of mercy. And this is what we need today. Our world is all about exacting vengeance and justice, it seems. Yet God offers us mercy. There's a clip shown on an episode of America's Funniest Home Videos that depicts God's mercy. It's a little grainy, I apologize. But I want you to see mercy in action. I love that visual. The brother has no issue crossing the crack in the sidewalk, but his little sister's stranded. So he bridges the gap, and she crosses via him. This is the gospel, friends. Jesus bridged the gap caused by our sin, the gap between us and God. Jesus extends mercy and now becomes the way for us to cross over. And here's what John concludes from this, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we've been impacted with such strong love, how can we not love others in the way that we've been loved? I remember a common theme in the old science fiction films we used to see when we were kids. A spaceship would travel too close to a hostile planet and get caught in its gravitational pull. And this is what John says happens to a Christian. When you get caught in the pull of God's love, you can't escape. You'll want to love others with that same love. He says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. God is spirit. He's visible spiritually. He's invisible to the physical eye. The closest this world comes to actually seeing God is observing his love flow through our lives. You reveal God when you demonstrate his love. Once a Salvation Army worker, she met a bag lady on the street. And she invited him, her to the chapel to receive some help. But the lady ignored her invitation until something unusual happened. This worker said later that she had never done it before, but she felt impressed to kiss this lady on the cheek. When she did, the woman began to sob. That night, the bag lady got some food, and she also received Christ. Later, she shared... You said God loved me, but when you showed me, that's when I wanted to get saved. And that could be said for many, many people. It's one thing to say we love. It's another thing to show it. John writes, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Remember, the fruit of the spirit is, it's love. Galatians 5 verse 22 God's love comes to us in three ways. He speaks it to us. He does it for us. Then he puts it in us. God's love is proclaimed in the Bible. It's proven on the cross. 
but it's perfected in our hearts. In fact, the Greek word in verse 12, translated perfected, it means complete. The love of God comes full circle. God proclaims it, then he proves it. Then love finds its ultimate destination when it flows through us. Verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. The true God abides abides in the heart that embraces the truth about Jesus. And it's not just what Jesus does, but it's who he is that matters. Jesus is not only Savior of the world, but he's also the Son of God. And realize what this means. In the Hebrew way of thinking, the son of a horse is a horse. The son of a man makes him a man, and thus being the Son of God makes Jesus God. Just as much God as the Father is God. See, John keeps reiterating, you can't be wrong about Jesus and be right with God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. This love of God, it's not just speculation, John says. We're not just hoping God loves us. We're certain he does. And why are we so sure? Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross and he said, I love you this much. We can be assured of God's love by trusting in Jesus. He says, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. God loves to love, and he'll team up with the person through whom he can love. Verse 17, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Jesus was despised and rejected, unappreciated for who he was. And as he is, so are we in this world. Loved by God, but hated by the world. This is the predicament that the Christian has to navigate today. Yet one day, on judgment day, those who know God's love will be free from fear. Our sin has already been judged on the cross of Jesus. Thus we'll stand boldly, assured of God's forgiveness, confident of his love. He says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. You know, humans are besieged by various fears. Fear is one of our fiercest foes. There's the fear of failure, the fear of people. Oh, there's the fear of the unknown. And yet the love of God conquers all our fears. There's no fear of failure when I'm sure God's love accepts me. There's no fear of people when I know God's love perfects me. There's no fear of the unknown when I'm confident God's love protects me. Here's the great truth. God's perfect love casts out fear. And then verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. The source of my love for God is his love for me. Would your child love you if you didn't love your child? Of course not. And neither would you love God if he had not loved you first. Romans 2 verse 4 drives home this point. 
It says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? I grew up with the kind of religion that was designed to scare you into repentance. Hell, fire, and damnation. That's what we heard every Sunday. You'd come home from church and have to brush off the ashes. And though this may have temporarily kept us in check, trust me, it did very little to capture our hearts. It was when I discovered God's love for me. That's what drew me in. His love caused me to want to love Him in return. Today, when I sense my passion for God growing cold, I recall His love for me. It refuels my love for Him. This is why Jude tells us, keep yourself in the love of God. The key to loving God is letting God love you. And then verse 20 is the narrative that John is determined to maintain. He's adamant. He keeps stressing this point over and over. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, here it is again, that he who loves God must love his brother also. This is the drum that John beats continually. In chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. In chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. In chapter 3, verse 16. In chapter 4, verse 7. In chapter 3, verse 23. In chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And now, here in chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. We know that we know God. The world knows that we know God if we have love for one another. That's 11 verses. In over 10% of his letter, John repeats this point. You know that you know God. You know that you've been born of God if you have love for your brother. See, love is the pulse. It's the heartbeat that indicates that a person is alive with the life and the Spirit of God. But lack love. Harbor hatred in your heart. And though you might say you love God, it's a lie. There's a disconnect. And here's a big characteristic of love. It maintains the narrative. It stays focused on the issue at hand. Let me explain. Three weeks ago, America saw the video of the cruel and senseless death of George Floyd. It was horrendous. Floyd, a black man, was handcuffed and on the ground when a white police officer stuck his knee on Floyd's neck and impaired his ability to breathe. No one I know that saw this wasn't appalled by this video. And it came on the heels of the murder of Ahmaud Arbery by racist vigilantes. Both events stunned us. They reminded us of the lingering reality of racism in 2020. You know, once Jesus told the story of a shepherd who left his flock of 99 to go after the one lost sheep, And I can hear the other shepherds criticizing. 
Don't all sheep matter? Why care for just one sheep? It's because that one sheep was the sheep that was lost. Jesus was specific. He went after the one lost sheep. He wasn't content insisting that all sheep matter, not when there was one sheep that was lost. I ran across an interesting quote. The fact that society has to clarify that any lives matter should be concern enough. Black lives matter because they're the lives that are being threatened at the moment. Yet over the last three weeks, we've encountered all kinds of reaction that has distracted us from the fuse that ignited it all. Some of which is just as outrageous as what occurred to George Floyd. There have been riots and looting. The death of two black police officers. Injuries to hundreds of other officers. Attacks on innocent people. The destruction of minority-owned businesses. Cries to defund the police. Even the takeover of Seattle. These are also horrendous events. And do these issues need addressing? Of course they do. But here's what's happened. The legitimate concerns of black brothers that I love are getting lost in the chaos. We should remember that four centuries of slavery and years of Jim Crow, even our original constitution considered the black man three-fifths of a person. This kind of sin leaves scars on a society and on a people. You know, last week I mentioned in my sermon that two of our church employees, Vernon and JP, I talked about them and the issues they face as young black men in America. Frequently they encounter forms of racism. They have a justified fear of the police that white folks know nothing about. Trust me, in their minds, racial justice is still a goal, not a reality. And I, as a white person, need to listen The Bible says, weep with those who weep. I need to show empathy. James 1 verse 19 is a fitting verse. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We need to listen, not try to divert the conversation. Most importantly, as John did, we need to maintain the narrative. We need to keep our eye on the ball and not allow all the noise to muffle legitimate grievances. Here is love. Let's not forget the real issues. Let's learn to work in ways that can bring about true unity and harmony. Chapter 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ... And you know the word Christ, it means Messiah, God's anointed, the Savior of the world. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. You know, the greatest kindness that you can give me is to be nice to my kids. Give one of my sons a job. Or babysit one night for my daughter. And you've done me a great favor. And so it is with God. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. You and I were born of God spiritually, but Jesus is God's only physically begotten Son. 
The Holy Spirit hovered over the womb of the virgin and God became a man. Thus to love God is to love his son Jesus. And the opposite is true. Deny or defame God's only begotten son and you reveal your hatred for God. This is what you realize when you stand in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. You stand right before the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim shrine there on the Temple Mount. Across the eaves of the Muslim shrine, written in Arabic, the words read, God does not beget and God is not begotten. It's a direct denial of what we've just read, 1 John chapter 5, John 3, 16. It denies Jesus' unique birth and his deity, and it reveals Islam's hatred for the true God. He says in verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Again, how do we know our salvation is legitimate? Do we love God and do we obey him? For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. God's commandments aren't difficult or complicated or onerous. His commands are for our good and for his glory. In Matthew 11 verse 30, Jesus said, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Love Jesus and you'll want to obey God. You'll look for ways to please him. Verse 4 For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. You see, the world is pressuring us to conform and give in to sin and temptation. But God plants His Spirit on the inside of us and counters the temptation of the world with an inner resistance. Thus, the key to overcoming is learning how to live from the inside out. You've got to learn to draw on the inner resources that God's Spirit embeds in your spirit. The Christian life is like a helium balloon. Fill a balloon with helium and it rises despite the gravity that wants to keep it down. The life of the Spirit gives us the same kind of buoyancy, a spiritual lift. It enables us to overcome hardships, to stay above the temptation. He says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world Our faith. What's the key to living this inside-out life? It's faith. Our trust in Jesus activates his life and power. He says, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Again, it's faith in Jesus that overcomes the world. It's interesting, the Greek word translated victory in verse 4 is a word you're familiar with. It's the name Nike, which was the name of the Greek goddess for victory. Apparently, she wore fancy sneakers with a swoosh logo on them. But don't follow her motto, just do it. No, remember the key to victory, it's not just do it, it's our faith. It's trust in the work that Jesus has done. We need to trust in the victory that he has won. It's faith that unlocks his power in our lives. Now remember from the two previous weeks here in 1 John, this letter was written to address the dangerous heresy of Gnosticism. And yet there were two types of Gnosticism, both named after the men who championed them, 
First was a belief called docetic Gnosticism. It taught that Jesus was a ghost, just a phantom, that he had not really come in the flesh. They had a problem with that, that his body was only an illusion, an apparition. The other branch of Gnosticism was Serinthian Gnosticism. It taught that the Spirit of Christ came on the man Jesus at his baptism, but departed before he was crucified. Again, they couldn't bear the thought of the of God himself being physically crucified. But here in a single verse, John blasts both heresies. He blasts both camps out of the water. He says in verse 6, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. The water refers to Jesus' birth. Mary's water broke. Jesus was born of human flesh, a human birth. He wasn't a phantom. He wasn't a ghost. He was flesh and bone. And the blood refers to his death. The Savior of mankind, God's Son, spilt literal blood upon the cross. Through the water and the blood, the Spirit bears witness of Jesus. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. If you're reading from a newer translation of the Bible, verse 7 might not be included. And let me tell you why. We no longer have the original writings of the New Testament. What we have today are manuscripts are copies of the originals. This is true of most ancient writings. And here's how you judge the reliability of a writing from antiquity. First, how many copies do you have? And second, how old are those copies? If we have a lot of copies and if they're very old, we can assume that what we have today faithfully represents the originals. And as far as the New Testament is concerned, what we have is truly amazing. There are 5,800 Greek copies of the New Testament, some dating back to the 2nd or 3rd centuries. And they're in 95% agreement with each other. The few variations are about spelling or grammar, never doctrine. Which brings us to our problem here with verse 7. It's not in the oldest of these manuscripts. The verse is only in a couple of very late copies. And none of the early church fathers quoted it to defend the doctrine of the Trinity as they surely would have if it had been available. Thus it's possible that verse 7 was added in the 14th or 15th centuries by an overzealous scribe and shouldn't be included. If that's true, it was a mistake by the King James translators. It wasn't John's mistake. It wasn't God's mistake. The original writings were inerrant. God saw to it that what the biblical authors wrote was exactly what he intended. It was the mistake of one of the translators of the King James Version. Perhaps the well-meaning scribe included verse 7 because it taught the nature of God, which the rest of the Scripture agrees with, where it's true, The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit 
and these three are one. And then he says, and there are three that bear witness on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Jesus was born a man of water. The Holy Spirit came upon him as a dove at his baptism. And Jesus remained both God and man on the cross. Thus, all three witnesses, the spirit, the water, and the blood, that is, his baptism, his birth, and his death, all agree on the nature of Jesus. Jesus was fully divine and fully human, 100 proof God and 100 proof man. And then he says in verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. The Spirit, water, blood testified of Jesus. But this was God's objective stamp of approval on Jesus. There is a fourth witness of Jesus, which is the indwelling Holy Spirit, a subjective witness. Christians have this inner assurance that Jesus is God. And then verse 11, And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Notice this, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I've seen men kicked back by the lake with a fishing pole in their hand or tee off on a golf course on a stellar day and say to their friends, this is the life. But is it? Boy, some folks are satisfied with so little. If participating in a temporary pleasure or a physical thrill causes you to say, this is the life, you need to think again. If all life to you is scratching an itch, if that all there is to it, how sad. Real life is being touched by the God who created you. Real life is brushing up against eternity and knowing your life will count forever. He who has the Son has life. Real life is encountering Jesus Christ. He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. God's desire was not just for them to believe but to continue in their faith. For he wants them to know they have eternal life. Did you know that you can leave this room today knowing that you have eternal life? Really? I can know that? I can be sure. Yes, you can. You can pray a simple prayer and you can invite Jesus into your heart and you'll have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit that yes, indeed, you have eternal life. If you'd like to pray that prayer, I'll be happy to pray it with you right after the service today. He says in verse 14, now this is the confidence that we have in him. And speaking of confidence, prayer is one area in which God has given us great confidence. He says, for if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Now, if God hears our prayers, we can be confident that he'll answer them in his time 
and in his way. So the key to prayer is to make sure that your prayers get heard. But doesn't God hear our prayers? Doesn't God hear all our prayers? I thought he did. And the answer to that is yes and no. Sure, God is omniscient. He sees all. He knows all. He hears all. But in another sense, he doesn't hear every prayer. And we should be glad. Here's a riddle for you. What do you get when you cross a termite with a praying mantis? Answer? An insect that says grace before each your house. <laughs> Thought you'd need a little help with that. You hope God doesn't hear the prayer of a termite. There are prayers that I've prayed that I'm glad God didn't hear. After I prayed them, I wished that I could take them back. You know, if you've had kids, you know that when they're little, they whine a lot. They ask for everything, and when they don't get it, they ask again and again and again. When my little kids started to whine, I would respond, I can't hear you. I would refuse to entertain their quibbling. I'm glad that God has taken the same approach with me sometimes, with some of us adult whiners. God answers only the prayers he really hears that make it past his ears and down into his heart. This is why when we pray according to God's will, that's when we're certain that our prayers will be answered. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. Now, the Bible is full of examples of sin that led directly to someone's death. In Leviticus 10, when the priests defiled the altar, God struck them dead. In Numbers 16, when Korah defied God's authority, the ground opened up and swallowed him. In 2 Samuel 6, when sinful hands touched God's sacred ark, he was struck dead. And even in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira were struck down dead when they pretended to be more spiritual than they really were and lied to the Holy Spirit. The sin that leads to death is not always the same sin. And a person who might commit the same sin under a different set of circumstances may be spared. We should face it. If everybody who ever played the hypocrite and claimed to be more spiritual than they really were were struck dead, we'd probably have a smaller crowd than we do this morning. But there are certain acts that in certain situations prove to be such a blight on the body of Christ that God sees fit to arrange an early exit for the perpetrator. John's point here is if you see a brother's sin, pray for him. If it's leading to death, you'll know soon enough. If it's not, then perhaps your prayer may be what turns him around. And then verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself. And the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God. 
And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Now, I hope you don't believe that the devil lives in hell or that he hangs out in hell. Satan doesn't want to go to hell any more than you do. The book of Job teaches us that Satan is going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Apparently, the whole world is his turf. As John puts it, the whole world lies under the sway of Satan. But there is one place the devil and his demons can't intrude without God's specific approval. And that's in the life of a man who has been born of God. We are the untouchables. If you've been born of God, you're one of the untouchables. Remember, Satan couldn't harm a hair on Job's head until he had first received God's permission. And the same applies to you. Guys, we have a father filter. Isn't that wonderful? That means nothing gets to me unless it first passed through him. And he attaches to the trial a high and holy purpose. We have a father filter. I think that's cool. And then verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. Throughout the book, John has been dropping reasons why Jesus came into the world. It's quite an interesting list. In chapter 3, verse 5, he came to take away our sins. In chapter 3, verse 8, to destroy the works of the devil. In chapter 4, verse 9, so that we could live through him. In chapter 4, verse 14, he came to be the savior of the world. Now here in chapter 5, verse 20, he comes that we may know God. Jesus came to reveal the heart of God to you and me. God has revealed himself in his written word, the Bible, and in his living word, his son, Jesus Christ. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Jesus was more than a man. He is the true God. He alone has eternal life. That means we need to fall at his feet and worship him. You know, today's notion that it really doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you are sincere, as long as you believe in something, this is ludicrous. Our faith is only as good as its object. There is a true God. To say it doesn't matter what you believe in, As long as you're sincere, that's like telling a doctor that his diagnosis doesn't matter as long as he tries his best. Sorry, that's no good for me. I want to know the true God, and his name is Jesus. And then John ends his letter. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. And don't you dare think that idolatry was an ancient problem with no relevance to modern Americans. We are just as vulnerable to idolatry as the pagan with the statue on his mantle. Anything we value more highly than Jesus has in essence become our idol. St. Augustine had a definition for idolatry that's been helpful to me. He said, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything 
that is meant to be worshipped. Material possessions are tools to be used for God's glory. But when we forget that they're a means to an end and treat them as an ends in themselves, we've made them an idol. Remember, keep yourselves from idols. And there we have John's first letter. He's got two.